0: The lack of access to journalists during this extradition hearing is an abomination. The lack of media attention is an abomination, even not just among corporate news media, but also independent news media. Some of them even putting out statements saying that, oh, where's the attention on the Assange trial? And criticizing them and then continuing not to cover the Assange hearing. This is an attack on press freedoms. It's an attack on whatever semblance of justice the UK system has. It's a violation of EU law. It's a violation of UK law, US law, international law. And it's an an abomination that we have Julian Assange being put on trial for exposing war crimes. We have Chelsea Manning that's been tortured and then thrown back once again in jail for exposing war crimes, uncovering mass graves of 15,000 Iraqis. And the people who committed these war crimes, Tony Blair, George Bush, Jack Straw, they're they're, they're all gone, Paul Wolfowitz, Don Rumsfeld, we didn't even hear their names once inside this god courtroom. You know, this might be the city of London, but it's the United States that's holding the gavel. They're the ones running this show, and this is disgusting. And everything that WikiLeaks did, everything that Julian Assange did, these were valiant acts of of anti-imperialism, and they need to be they need to be portrayed as such. And we need to recall the real crimes that they exposed here. It's not just an attack on freedom of press; it's 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 an attack on the very lives of people that are bombed every day, the people that are killed every day, we talk about them like they're ants or something. This is unacceptable. And they want to make us feel sorry for imaginary informants that were never hurt. And the United States, by their own admission, told us that no one was ever harmed by WikiLeaks. So what's going on here? This is a disgusting violation of Julian Assange's human rights. It's a disgusting violation of journalistic freedoms and the freedom of press. And it's an absolute mockery of any kind of semblance of justice in this country.
1: Richard Medhurst, welcome to Renegade Inc. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, The speech that we've just seen, the speech that you made outside the Julian Assange uh, hearing. uh, Firstly, unfussy, straightforward, right to the point, truthful, unvarnished. Were you surprised that the uh, crowd, the public crowd, that had gathered outside that hearing wasn't bigger? Well, this was uh,
0: day 18, was the final day of the hearing. Uh, It was uh, a bit larger than than other days, but yeah, obviously one would expect uh, everyone to be up in arms about what's happening to Julian Assange, the threat against uh, press freedoms and and journalistic freedoms that we're up against, not just in the UK, but worldwide. And uh, unfortunately, uh, throughout four weeks of the hearing, we didn't see that much uh, happening outside the, the courthouse. I mean, I have, to, I have to give a huge shout out to the activists because they showed up from six, seven in the morning uh, queuing up to, to get people uh, that had their access revoked, uh, including uh, Reporters uh, Without Borders and uh, myself included also. So they, they were there all day from the morning till the evening. And uh, I really have to give them a, a huge shout out. But apart from them, I mean, it is shocking the, the lack of public outcry
1: around this case. Why is there such um, inertia around this? Why aren't the public really up in arms? Well, I think it's uh,
0: the reason is twofold. It's it's because um, the media are not doing their job, and and this is not just uh, corporate news media, but also when it comes to independent media, uh, they just can't be bothered to cover this case. uh, I think because they're just not interested in anything that's got to do with national security journalism and exposing war crimes and covering foreign policy. And of course, the corporate news media they're just an arm of the national security state, so they're not going to cover somebody who goes against their narrative and the establishment lines that they parrot. And the other reason is that there's been an enormous smear campaign against Julian Assange for the past decade um, they've been trying to character assassinate him, paint him as a cyber criminal, as a Russian intelligence asset. So you have people that end up uh, shying away from his case and not wanting to defend what's happening, when in fact it's not just about Assange, it's about press freedoms worldwide. And you know, if the US can reach across the Atlantic and just kidnap journalists, what's next? If Julian Assange is extradited, he will most surely be convicted and it's the end of journalistic freedoms as we know it. It's, the, it's setting a new precedent that the UK is going to Give up journalists that the U.S. wants, and and let them uh, just pluck them out of central London and put them away in a federal uh, supermax prison in the U.S. for two centuries, and uh, it's it's sending a message that anyone who calls out, who exposes government wrongdoing and, and crimes, is going to be punished. And the the mere fact that they've spied on Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy and violated his legal privilege and. they're putting him in solitary confinement, it's in violation of so many jurisdictions, UK law, uh, violation of EU law, international law, US law. I mean, I could go on and on about this. It's, it's unbelievably uh, corrupt.
1: You re- you really take aim at the independent media. Uh, and I quote you, you say, I demand better from the independent media. Um, why have they, uh because the clue's in the title, independent media. Why have they been so such cowards when it's come to this?
0: I think one of the main issues is that they don't focus on foreign policy to begin with. Right. So, I mean, I could say the same thing about the coverage on Syria. I could say the same thing about the coverage on Latin America, on these coups in, in Bolivia and Venezuela. I, I, I think this is uh, just uh, laziness and, and also uh, a lack of knowledge. They just don't know what they're talking about. And they're also scared. You know, it is cowardice also to a certain degree because they're afraid of being uh, labeled uh, this and that or being lumped in with the, the uh, Russian intelligence smear, which we hear so often about Julian Assange and anyone who defends WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. But that, that's the whole thing. They, they stigmatize these issues on purpose so that no one covers them.
1: And does that have a chilling effect on independent media and other journalists? Because they think, well, I'm a career journalist. I've got to pay the bills. I want to keep my nose clean. I want to be, you know, st- keep doing this work that chilling effect means that you don't go near these things.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and we're seeing that not just with Julian Assange and the war on Syria, but also when it comes to this recent scandal with the Hunter Biden emails. You know, the Biden campaign, Hunter Biden himself, have not denied the authenticity of these emails, yet nonetheless, we're already hearing uh, things about, oh, it's a a Russian disinformation campaign. And so this automatically discourages journalists from, from questioning the official narrative at all. So it's definitely by design to keep people away from holding governments accountable and holding political elites accountable.
1: How will Joe Biden blame the Russians for the birth of his son, Hunter? (laughs) Uh, I have no idea. (laughs) But logically, it's the next step, isn't it? If you keep going and following that, logic through, because it seems to me that America has done absolutely zero wrong in all of its history, but it does uh, point the finger at pretty much everybody else for all of its failures.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the next thing they're going to tell us that uh, the laptop was made in Russia as well. I mean, it's, it's absurd, <laughs> right? They, the FBI has come out and said that uh, it's not a disinformation campaign and they're not investigating it as such. But nonetheless, you're still hearing from Democratic Party operatives that It's Russia. Anything they don't like, anything that challenges the status quo is always Russia. And uh, whether that's Julian Assange or or, uh, the kin of political elites.
1: One of the things that I'm sort of uh, shocked by or surprised by is the uh, omnipotence of Vladimir Putin. It seems that when anything goes wrong at all, he is behind it. I mean, he must have, what, 50, 60 hours in his day to be able to get up to that much meddling around the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. He's a busy man. Uh, you know, uh, I myself, I'm based in the Kremlin basement. No, I'm <laughs>
1: but, so, so
0: I know, I hear about these things. He's, he's a very busy man.
1: Is that narrative uh, post-Russia gate, is that starting to run out of steam now that, the, look, let's, scapegoat the russians for everything
0: christ no it's not i I think it's going to get even worse i mean can can you just imagine if joe biden wins the election and you want to report on anything i mean you can't they're going to say that anything any kind of critique you make against the president oh you're a kremlin agent now you're a putin puppet i mean this is going to be even worse than than with trump it's 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 going to be complete uh censorship and we've seen that in the last few days they've been trying to uh, stop people from retweeting without uh, including text they've been uh uh, blocking the New York Post story about Hunter Biden, they just s- straight up banned the link. I mean, it's it's we're reaching new levels now.
1: Where does this logically end?
0: <laughs> I, I it, it ends in the complete abolition of uh, journalistic freedoms. That's where it's leading us. It's leading us down a, a rabbit hole of of utter madness. I mean, uh, if we can't even question a bunch of emails that are not that damning because we already knew that. This corruption is going on. He's involved in uh, these lucrative deals in China and uh, was sitting on the board of Burisma. We already knew this stuff. So that wasn't even the main issue here. The the main issue was the censorship. And it's just going to get even worse.
1: The Democrats, uh, you've branded Joe Biden as a crypto neoliberal. Unpack that for us. What's a crypto neoliberal? And where does the Democrat Party stand? at the moment on the political spectrum.
0: Right, so, so I mean, Joe Biden is a straight up neoliberal, straight up, but when I said crypto neoliberal, I was talking mainly about the progressives, uh, the House Democrats, the uh, Justice Democrats, because they were voted in on this brand of, oh, we're different from the democratic establishment. You know, we support Medicare for all, we support $15 minimum wage, Green New Deal, and all these things, and that's great. But when it comes to foreign policy, They're just as imperialist as the rest, they just won't open their mouths about anything to do with foreign policy. And when they do, it's either completely horrible and they're just parroting what other Democrats say and what even neocons say. And uh, as we saw in the DNC convention, they even invited a bunch of neocons to attend and speak. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's mainly with these uh, House Democrat progressives. They're just crypto neolibs and uh, I think a lot of people who support them are as well. They just don't even know it or they don't want to admit it because at the end of the day, they, they just sound like neoliberals who want health
1: That's it. You were born in Damascus, a Syrian mother, British father, uh, both of them working for the UN as peacekeepers and also on observation missions. Uh, you say that your mother and father really shaped uh, your view of the world. Uh, obviously they would. Your mother and father in 1988 were part of a group that won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, in yeah. 2009, there was a gentleman called Barack Obama who won the Nobel Peace Prize. And it turns out Mr. Obama uh, bombed uh, 10 times as much as George W. Bush. Uh, if you're going to break the stats down, in 2016 alone, which is obviously seven years after winning that prize, he dropped 26,171 bombs, which means three bombs an hour, 24 hours a day, all year. Do you think that the Nobel Peace Prize now, the reputation of it, is in tatters?
0: Partially, yes, unfortunately. I think it's been uh, abused quite a bit, on, uh, more than others, for example, if we're talking about uh, economics or, or literature. but. Uh, yeah, it's completely ridiculous that Barack Obama was given this uh, this prize, especially very prematurely. I mean, it was given to him before he had even completed one term or actually achieved anything that one could even describe as even remotely deserving of the Nobel Peace Prize. So it was just given prematurely to him. And then, of course, he went wild, as you described, uh, very eloquently. His uh, The amount of bombs that he dropped is, is astounding. I mean, the drone strike program had a 90% death rate among civilians and uh, he ramped up the mass surveillance programs. I mean, when it comes to the foreign policy, he's a neocon through and through. And, and even in domestic terms, he described himself as a moderate Republican. So, I mean, the fact that he won this prize is really absurd and, and it, it is a bit damning for the reputation of the Nobel Peace Prize, indeed,
1: yeah. He enjoyed use of the word moderate. What's a moderate rebel? Because he used to talk uh, extensively about moderate rebels, what are they?
0: So the moderate rebels are, of course, the um, 50 flavors of jihad as I call them, uh, in Syria, uh, which we keep hearing about even to this day. Uh, you know, we, uh, they talk about Idlib, for example, in, in northern Syria, which is uh, essentially the last rebel stronghold of moderate rebels. But of course, it's being run by Hayat uh, Tahrir al-Sham, which is uh, also referred to as HTS, which is uh, rebranded Al-Qaeda. And uh, you know, moderate rebels are what the Western media have uh, rebranded or tried to market uh, the uh, jihadists, as uh, essentially, for the last decade during the war on Syria. It's
1: kind of uh, amazing whitewash job, isn't it?
0: Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, the entire uh, war on Syria, I'd say it's the most propagandized conflict in modern history, because uh, you, you look at the recent leaks on um, all these organizations uh, like ARC, which the British government was dumping, Millions into uh, which, of course, this is common in re- regime change efforts. They've been doing the same thing in Venezuela. But it's quite astounding the amount of money that has gone into uh, the white helmets, that has gone into uh, these uh, uh, NGOs that appear out of nowhere, that are created by British intelligence, that have gone into all these uh, jihadist groups, the weapons that have flown into the country. Uh, it, it's, it's unbelievable, the, the concerted effort by Western governments to, to try and market the war on Syria, as some kind of grassroots uh, civil uh, or rather populist uprising
1: will they be successful?
0: No, I don't think so. Uh, I think uh, Syria is another uh, example of where imperialism failed, uh, just like Vietnam. I mean, if you look at the map of Syria right now, uh, ISIS has been uh, eviscerated. Most of the Syrian territories have been taken back by the Syrian Arab army. You, you still have the northeastern regions occupied by the uh, Kurdish-led SDF. But when it comes to the CIA-backed uh, moderate rebels and uh, the Turkish-backed moderate rebels, you just have Idlib left. And I think that will be dealt with uh, swiftly and and, uh, soon, hopefully.
1: Richard, in that first half, uh, we uh, talked about Barack Obama. Uh, He openly now says that one of his great regrets is Libya, uh, another failed NATO Uh, mission. But when we look at his record, uh, not just the amount of drone strikes he's used and the amount of bombs, this is a man who ran on a ticket that he was going to close uh, Guantanamo Bay, he was going to stop this indiscriminate bombing and the imperialist expansion of the US. I mean, when you hold him to account on those things, you can't really say that any of that was true. And in fact, when you look at that legacy, is riddled with failure. Absolutely, and uh, we remember the famous line that he said,
0: we tortured some folks.
1: Even before I came into office, uh,
0: uh, I was very clear that uh, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, we did some things that were wrong. We did a whole lot of things that were right, but we tortured some folks. He lied about mass surveillance. He, he said in 2007 on the campaign trail that he would cut mass surveillance and he would get rid of it. And then he took these programs and expanded them uh, as we, we later came to find out thanks to the revelations by Edward Snowden. And of course, there was a troop surge in Afghanistan. Uh, He kept the troops, uh, the war in Iraq going, even though he ran on an anti-war message and said he would stop all these wars. And then he turned two wars into seven and and, and started bombing my country, Syria, and then destroyed Libya, which uh, of course is left out of the media now that it's become a failed state, and uh, started uh, expanding the AFRICOM program. And now we have the largest uh, drone base in the world Uh, that's cost billions of dollars in in Niger. And uh, of course he failed to close Guantanamo Bay. He said he would close that and uh, it's still not closed. And all of these failed promises and and not just that, but this expanded, this this continued, this increased aggression all over the planet.
1: We spoke to Daniel Kovalec, the author of the book, No More War. And his view is very, very straightforward. That this actually isn't a failure. This is the model that you go in, bomb, create chaos and leave and not even uh, attempt to assert democracy or uh, you know, do any of the cleanup job that, uh, that what you would once do when trying to enact re- regime change. Do you subscribe to that? Do you think that this is just now create chaos and go on to the next thing?
0: Well, that certainly seems to be the strategy in Syria right now. They, they've implemented a scorched earth policy. They've been burning the wheat. They've been stealing the oil. They've been implementing the Caesar Act sanctions, which have caused the currencies going to freefall. So that's definitely the strategy in Syria. And, and just in general, I think it's quite... Uh, underwhelming and disappointing that the 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 world somehow looks to the United States and the United Kingdom to just interfere in other countries and then stay there indefinitely and, and fix them. It's not their job to fix them. It's not their job to interfere in other countries in the first place. This is a very imperialistic mindset that uh, most people in the world have unfortunately been brainwashed into believing has to always be the case. It does not have to be the case. But it certainly seems to be the, the repeated model that we see with every president.
1: You say that this isn't to punish Assad or even really to get rid of him. What you say is this is to prevent the Syrians, the Syrian people, rebuilding. Is it the case that when you stop people rebuilding their country, it is actually then easier to steal their resources?
0: Yes, absolutely. The Syrian infrastructure has been completely decimated. Uh, just looking at the revenue from oil, for example, oil used to account for 25% of the Syrian government's revenue. All of that has been going from, from the hands of ISIS to the hands of the Kurds to the hands of the Americans now, uh, shifting from, from uh, one set of hands to the next. And uh, th- this is an enormous source of revenue that the Syrian people have been robbed of, not to mention the fact that Syria has been self-sufficient since the 1990s. Uh, wheat, for example, it had an abundance of wheat. It was a net exporter. and Now we're seeing pictures of bread lines. This is not normal. They've, they've destroyed this country on purpose because it's self, uh, self-sufficient, because it had no uh, debts towards the IMF, because it was giving a finger, essentially, to the United States and Israel next door. So. That's why they made sure to break Syria and uh, it definitely makes rebuilding harder for the Syrian people and that's what the goal of the Caesar Act sanctions is. Um, It's to stop Syria from being able to to come up for air and and it's made to discourage and, and punish people who interact and engage with the Syrian government even if it's just for the purpose of rebuilding the country.
1: You are really uh, harsh on independent media, and maybe rightly so. What you say, and what you said in that first half, is that basically they virtue signal a lot of the trends, Julian Assange, and then they'll quickly move on. An independent journalist who hasn't done that and gone and based herself in Syria is uh, a journalist called Vanessa Beely. She now is uh, on the receiving end of a corporate or uh, state-sponsored media campaign uh, to try and marginalize her voice. Are you surprised at that?
0: No, not at all. I, I spoke to Vanessa just the other day and I went through this email that she received from the BBC where they're essentially uh, issuing indirect legal threats on behalf of Her Majesty's government. Extremely harrowing stuff and, and the audacity of it is, is quite unbelievable that they are daring to describe her as someone who's not a journalist even though she's been in the field she's been reporting on things that no one else would uh they they've issued her uh, these indirect legal threats and they've they've attempted to intimidate her and a, uh, character assassinate her and smear her with this program that they're making now. And this is all because she went against the official narrative on the White Helmets, which of course the uh, BBC and a lot of Western media have spent years trying to market as some kind of uh, valiant NGO that just sprung out of thin air when it's been founded and run by British intelligence in an order to uh, smear the Syrian and Russian governments from fighting
1: against terrorists, which the Western governments created in the first place. The Russians have been invited into Syria. Uh, that isn't something that we hear on a regular basis. Assad has said to Putin, you come here uh, and fight these terrorists. We want rid of them. Um, Why don't we hear that more regularly? And uh, is it the case that Putin realizes that if Syria blows into another Libya, actually the geopolitical risk is significant, not just for Russia, but for wider Europe?
0: Absolutely. I mean, just from the Iraq war in 2003, we saw what that did to the region. It's been on fire ever since, and it spilled over into Syria in the form of Daesh or, or ISIS and uh, created enormous instability. And uh, of course, we never hear that Russia was invited to, to help Syria fight the threat of terrorism and uh, Salafi jihadists, which have been funded by the uh, Arab states in the Persian Gulf, uh, aided and abetted by Turkey and Israel, and of course, by the UK and uh, the United States. Uh, you know, Russia has had a naval base inside of Syria since the 1970s in Tartus, and they, they've had a military presence inside of Syria for decades. So they've, they've been there, Officially for a long time now and if they're helping the Syrian government to fight terrorism. Well, that's the Syrian government's prerogative that's that's uh, something that's been that's a decree that's been issued by the Syrian people but to have the Americans come in have the Turks come in and uh, a dozen other countries ganging up against Syria and violating its sovereignty and invading it and plundering its resources is absolutely not the same thing and you'll hear about skirmishes between Russian uh, troops and uh, American troops in Syria. The Americans have no right to be there in the first place. So, whatever the Russian troops do, that's, that's because they've been given authorization and permission by the Syrian government.
1: Let's come to context uh, in all this, because we can talk about airbrushing and hijacking the cognitive map, we can talk about the uh, manufactured consent, uh, and we understand that, and we understand that, you know, propaganda in any of these conflicts is front and center, especially in the digital or information age. In the UK, it seems to me that school history uh, focuses on about uh, three or four things. The first is 1066. The second is Henry VIII. The the third is the Second World War. uh, And then the fourth is our general uh, brilliance at going around the world and creating peace uh, and democracy. That is basically the syllabus. Uh, Is it the case that we uh, haven't really got to grips with our history to really understand the historical context of how we got here? And unless you do that, you don't understand how you can start to get out of some of these situations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the Western nations, especially the US and the UK, they've, they've sort of capitalized off of World War I and World War II to assert themselves as these forces for good and democracy around the world. People forget these were horrible wars that no one wanted to fight. I mean, my great-grandfather was shot uh, in fighting in World War I. My great-grandfather served in the RAF. He absolutely hated it. Didn't even want to collect his service medals. These were horrible wars, and they've been cap- the, these governments have capitalized off of them to go around and start even more destruction and more conflicts and and cause suffering to other people in the name of democracy. This is complete hypocrisy, and uh, this is not to mention the glossing over of the colonial histories of France, of the of UK, and uh, the genocide that was committed by these countries, and of course by the uh, settlers and uh, colonial expansionism inside of the American uh, continents, and so. We we gloss over these things and and brainwash generations uh, into thinking that we're forces for good. We're not. We need to come to terms and and,
1: uh, reckon with our history. And you say that as a Brit? Yeah, I do. When it comes to solutions, we know that you want a uh, independent media that has teeth, an independent media that doesn't virtue signal and follow trends, but actually goes for the truth. When it comes to other solutions, what else are you calling for? Because man and woman on the street often hear the analysis that you've just put out and think, golly gosh, that happens at a geopolitical level. I don't know how to influence that. And when I write to my MP, he doesn't even, or she doesn't even have the time or the manners, quite frankly, to reply to me.
0: Well, the thing is that the political apparatus inside of the United Kingdom, and especially inside of the United States, has been designed in a way that, you know, They're not there to represent anyone. It's just by name. It's just in name that they are representative democracies. Unfortunately, they've made it on purpose that the average uh, man or woman will not be heard and will have their concerns listened to by their elected representatives. And uh, they're told to essentially uh, kick dust when, when, when that happens. Now, the thing is that when we're talking about elections, people need to understand that casting a ballot every four years and expecting change domestically and abroad, it's not going to work. You know, when you look at the United States, when you look at uh, France, when you look at back 100 years ago, you had these enormous coalitions of socialists, of, of communists, of unionists, of workers, of, of really vibrant coalitions that use direct action as a means to oppose their governments and hold them accountable. And we see none of that anymore. They've, they've decimated unions, they've decimated any kind of direct action, and now they're criminalizing it, essentially. And, uh, you know, I spoke to Fidel Narvaez, who was the former consul to the Ecuadorian embassy, and he told me himself that... When it comes to the Assange hearing, for example, which, which has extreme ramifications domestically and, and, and abroad for, for press freedoms and freedom of speech everywhere, he told me that the judge is under extreme political pressure to extradite Assange. And the only thing that is going to work now, because the defense have already given all the arguments and the tools to stop the extradition, is public outcry. And so this is where we have this relationship come in, where if people are not educated by the media, of course they're not going to act. That's why we need an independent media with teeth and then people need to show up as well
1: so people showing up uh direct action uh, and actually genuinely getting involved as opposed to thinking that somebody else is looking after it that ultimately what you're saying is uh, the only tool to revitalize a what is a beleaguered democracy here in the uk
0: absolutely absolutely whether it's in france whether it's in the uk whether it's in the us direct action is always what works when people withhold their labor when they withhold their civil obedience that's when governments listen they don't care about the ballots that they cast. I mean, if you just look at the US, for example, they don't even have secure voting machines. And, and this has been verified independently countless times. So you don't even know what's happening with your ballot. They're losing them, they're having a scandal with trying to, uh, you know, Trump essentially trying to ban voting by mail. It's ridiculous. You can't rely on a representative democracy that is run by corporations because corporations only listen to money. So you have to withhold your labor and you have to withhold your civil obedience. And general strikes, rent strikes, debt strikes, These are the things that get things done, that get substantive change implemented.
1: Finally, who's going to win the US election?
0: My my gut tells me Donald Trump. I I think that his base is more loyal. I think they will show up. Uh, Joe Biden, uh, I mean, I just don't see him exciting the base as as much as Donald Trump does. Uh, Again, it's just a hunch.
1: Richard Medhurst, thank you very much for your time.
0: Thank you for having me on, it's been a pleasure.